You're listening to Your Daily Drive, and I'm Rick Thomas, and I'm so glad that you are here. The word for today is gaslighting. Have you heard that word? Are you familiar with it? Can you define it? Well, many people can't. It's a new word for some, even though it's been around for about 60 years now. But yet everybody knows what it is. Let me explain to you what it, let me give you a definition of what it is. And you might not have heard the word, which is something that I'm, I'm learning that folks don't know the word, but everybody knows what it is. Gaslighting is the mental manipulation that someone does to another individual. It's a psychological maneuver of abusive type people who want to control you by making you believe you're guilty of something that you did not do. And so it is a person who is placing something in your mind and trying to make it real to you, hoping that it will displace what you know to be true. And if they truly gaslight you, you will fully believe what they say. And if they do persist, I mean, what could happen is that you will give up. They would wear you down and you you will even accept what they say, even if your heart in your heart of hearts, you don't believe it. That's what gaslighting is. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about this in this podcast because there was a blurb that was placed on our Facebook page today, and within a few hours there was 100 likes, 100 shares, and a whole bunch of comments, and it's still going. And it's around this idea of gaslighting, and as I scroll through some of the comments, it's like, oh, this is a new word to an old idea, and it really resonated with so many people that I thought, you know, maybe it would be good for me to put this idea, this word, into my muse chamber and and churn out a couple of thousand words. And so that's what I did this afternoon for you. And so you're welcome to read this article if you wish. The title of the article is, What is Gaslighting? Its Effects and How to React to It. And so you're listening to the podcast. If you want, you can read the article. These resources are brought to you by our faithful supporting community. They are the people that make the backbone of this ministry, every single one of them, and I thank God for all of them. If they did not do what they do by supporting our ministry, we would not do what we do, and we would not be able to provide you with these free resources that you can benefit from and that you can share globally. And so I just I just want to Give credit where credit is due. And so thank you so much to our faithful supporting community who who donate to us and, and release us to be able to write resources like this, produce podcast videos, and so many other things. So thank you so much. Please read the article, What is Gaslighting, Its Effects, and How to React to It, and share it with a friend. This word may be new to you, but I know the idea is not. Many of you who are listening to this podcast, you have experienced this in some very personal and and even horrific ways. Some of you will, will try to read this article, but you will not be able to complete it because it's just that real to you. It resonates so close, so much, and so closely to your heart that you will have a hard time reading and and maybe even listening to this podcast. But if you can, I want you to persevere, and I want you to have a solid grasp, not only what gaslighting is, but also some 
tips on how you can help a person or maybe even help yourself to work through it. All right, let's go. The process of manipulating others, which again is what gaslighting is, is as old as Satan convincing Adam and Eve of the lie in Genesis 3. Five, six, seven, and we know how that went. God said in 2.15 and 16 and 17, he said, this is the truth. This is the truth. Don't do this. If you do this, you're going to surely die. So Adam and Eve knew what truth was. They, they, they had a hook on truth, and it was hanging in their minds, and then Satan came, and, and he, what he wanted to do is displace that truth and, and insert a lie and position that lie in their minds until that lie became the stronghold or the dominating argument, and they believed a lie instead of the truth gaslighting. It's old. Now, there are many synonyms that convey the idea of mental manipulation, which is what we're talking about here, mentally manipulating someone. One of the first uses of the word gaslight comes from the 1944 movie with the same name, Gaslight, starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. In this story, the husband is trying to convince his wife that she is insane. And the psychological community has participated in gaslighting experiments for years. You could think of it this way. It's a way of driving a person crazy, which is a good common way of thinking about what is going on here. And many of those experiments prove to be disastrous, as you might expect. Anytime that you try to take something that is true and displace it with something that is false and you convince them of that which is false, well, it can't end well for anyone. Anytime you coerce a person to believe something that their inner being is saying is not valid, there will always be an adverse psychological impact on the victimized soul. The most common modern word for gaslighting is abuse, though abuse is a much broader term that encompasses many sins. Uh, abuse and, and gaslighting are not exact mirrors. Abuse is a huge word, and gaslighting, uh, you could think of abuse like a bucket or a basket word, and gaslighting is part of the the word cloud that goes inside the basket of abuse. And so there are many things that communicate abuse. A gaslighting abuser will use this technique of mental manipulation because the goal is always to make a person believe an agenda. In a sense, it is a war of attrition. The victim, the victim of gaslighting may give up after a while and just accept whatever the person is telling them. And that's what I mean by a war of attrition. You just fall out. You just give up. You give in. You throw in the towel because you just, you just don't want to persist with them toe-to-toe, on and on, ad infinitum. Now, there has been a surge in this manipulative technique in our current culture of what's happening here in the States. The race baiters have made global and sweeping accusations toward every white person in America saying all white people are racist. That is gaslighting. Whenever you make universal, and I'm talking about cultural gaslighting here, I'm going to bring it down a little bit later 
uh, to the marriage relationship, but I just want to give you a, a taste of how it happens on several fronts. And so whenever you make universal accusations against any demographic, any organization, or any group, there are immoral motivations involved. You can't take an entire organization or a group and just say this is true, and then you you force and force uh, force uh, that idea on the entire group, and they have to embrace it. it. It would be ignorant to say that racism does not exist today. That nobody nobody in their right mind should argue that point. I mean, it's just plain ir- ignorance and. If you do argue the point, I'm not, I'm not even sure what would be going on in your mind to say for somebody to say there's no racism today, but it's just as wrong-headed to suggest that every white person is a racist. And so whatever truth claims the accusers have, those who are saying that every white person is a racist, whatever truth that I just said that racism does exist, that's a truth claim. But whenever you globally map it over an entire group of people, you lose your persuasive power. When you make those blanket accusations over everyone, this problem worsens when the only two acceptable people groups in the, in the world today are, are those who either, one, make the accusation and those who accept it. That's gaslighting the person who makes the accusation and the person who accepts it. And you're either in one or two camps. Of course, if you accept it, eventually you'll be in the camp of the accuser as well. And if those are the only two options, well, that's a gaslighting culture that we have. If you refuse to accept the fact that you are a racist, the louder, more manipulative and determined they become to convince you that you are wrong. And the only way you will be right and maybe I should put right in air quotes, is to believe what they believe. Forcing someone to think what you think, it either creates mindless adherence or volatile reactions. It's just not possible. And our culture is trying to gaslight in the illustration that I've I put forth here. But on a less go- global level, marriage is the most common place where you will see gaslighting. Most of the time it's the husband manipulating the wife to believe his perspective. Now, the two personality types, regardless of gender, I'm not bashing on husbands here. I am one, and so I'm not doing that. But there are two personality types involved, and as you understand the two personality types, is it kind of makes sense why More times than not, it will be a husband doing the gaslighting and the wife will be victimized by it because the two personality types, and again, regardless of gender, are the more forceful, persuasive person and the passive peacemaker. Those tend to be the two personality types involved. And that's why I say typically it's the husband because he's generally more forceful than and persuasive, and the wife will tend to be, though not always, passive and the peacemaker. And so the gaslighting person, male or female, is willing to overpower the other individual with their words. And the gaslit victim typically wants peace, and so they will take the path of least resistance. In many cases, they just don't have the ability or they have don't have the desire to live in an ongoing 
conflict. I was talking earlier about driving you crazy. They just drive you crazy. They just drive you into the carpet of defeat. And because divorce is a last resort, there is a good chance the victim will give in to the spouse's demands before they give up and leave the marriage. These marriages never realize all the Lord could do if they were genuinely one flesh. The gas lighter becomes larger, bigger in every way, while the victim continues to adjust their life in an ever-shrinking soul. They, they just reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced until they're minuscule, the ever-shrinking soul. And the worst version of this is a mindless shell of a person who is more robotic than alive. And I have, I have counseled these people that they just become what you want them to become because they basically have given up. That is the ever-shrinking soul. Gaslighting does not happen by accident. It's an addictive behavior. Let me give you a few labels. I want to bring this into a biblical nomenclature. And so I want to give you a few labels and descriptions that will bring clarity to this popularized cultural term, gaslighting. When helping anyone, it's wise to move your language from the world's way of thinking and labeling things to a biblical framework. And so from this point forward, I'm going to use our old friends, Bilf and Mabel, because we love Bilf and Mabel, and they're always up to something. And so I want to use them as an illustration of Bilf, of course, the gaslighter, and Mabel being victimized by Bilf. But I do want you to understand that if you, if you want to really get to the heart of what's going on with a person, you, you may start with a cultural term, and I've been using it generously in this podcast thus far, the term gaslighting. But if you really want to help someone, you want to move it move it from out in the cold and move it into the warmth of God's Word, and, and you'll, you'll relabel it, and it, it'll bring more clarity, which will allow you to uh, to get some help for these people. And so I want to I want to give you five biblical words or ideas that will help understand this idea of gaslighting. This is not exhaustive. I just it's just a sampling of five things that really tease out this word gaslighting. The first one is anger. Gaslighting is a form of anger. To put it mildly, Biff does not like Mabel. Now, the harsher, though, the more accurate word is, is hate. Anybody that does this, is this is just biblical hate. It is a form of anger. You do not do this kind of thing to someone you love. Biff's lack of love for his wife opens the door for him to use her for selfish reasons. And so part of what's going on with the gaslighter in his heart is anger. Number two is self-righteous. All anger is motivated by the elevated heart. Whenever you think about anger, you want to think about self-righteousness because they, they go together, hand in glove. You cannot be angry with anyone without elevating yourself above them. The key idea here is elevating yourself. That's self-righteous. Elevating yourself above them. Biff is looking down on Mabel. The gaslighter is looking down on the victim, not just by his actions, but with his self-righteous heart attitude. The arrogance of his superiority can be 
stifling. And so the word cloud that we're developing around this word of gaslighting is anger, self-righteous. Number three, sinful gift. Think about this. With an attitude that elevates him over Mabel and a lack of love in his heart for Mabel, Biff has gifts. He has strengths. And so, but he's not going to use his God-given gifts in such a way to help Mabel because he's, he doesn't like her. He has a self-righteous, arrogant attitude. And so he's not going to use the gifting that God has given him to help Mabel, to help his marriage. He will use his God-given gifts for his self-loving purposes. Maybe the gift of persuasion, the gift of communication, the gift of making his points. There are so many gifted people who can make their points and they use their points. They use their gifts, their God-given ability in sinful ways. And so that's why this third label here is sinful gift. Put those two words together. And then number four, sinful craving. Like an addict, which is what he is, Biff will use his abilities to bend the will of his wife so he can control her. So it's a sinful gift that accomplishes it, but it satisfies a sinful craving, which is to control her. It's a game of strategy designed to wear her down until he has what he wants, which is a a brainless, fully cooperative wife and well, I don't want to get on my soapbox at this point of how many times I've, I've, I've seen this. And even today, I was interacting with a pastor who was asking me some questions about this exact situation, about how to move forward in intervening in this, this person's life. And so you have anger, you have self-righteousness, you have a sinful gift, you have a sinful craving, and then number five, manipulation. The closest term that describes gaslighting, as I've already used this term before, but it's mental manipulation. Biff is attempting to bend the will of his wife by placing thoughts in her head that are contrary to what she has been thinking. If he persists, he will slowly erode her thoughts down to nothing while simultaneously replacing those thoughts with how he wants her to believe. And this is what Satan was doing to Eve. I I want to wear down God's thoughts in your minds, and I want to build in your mind, and I want to build up my thought in your mind until it's displaced it, until you believe a lie instead of the truth. Now, there are two common ways to know if a person is gaslighting you. The first is, and you'll see, maybe you know somebody like this, but they they will tell you what you are thinking without adequately understanding uh, your position on the matter. I have had this. The worst experience I've ever had with this was with a pastor. Uh, I had a pastor who did this all the blooming time. I remember one time I met with him for three hours Uh, at a coffee shop. And after hour two, I quit. I gave up. I just gave up and I I became the doggy in the window of the car. Back when I was a kid, you could get these little dog uh, toy dogs and you put them in the back window and they're it's like a it's a bobblehead is what it is. It's a bobblehead. And we'd put those a lot of people had those little dogs uh, in, in the back of their car window. And of course when the car's going down the road, that dog's just, you know, bobbling his head, you know, up and down. Well, that's the way I was doing. After uh, once we rolled into hour number three, I just became I became one of them little dogs. I, yeah. Yeah, you're right. 
you're right. That's what I was thinking. I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. The ideas that I had were dumb. You're right. Yes, you're right. And I just did the bobblehead thing for the next hour because I quit. I quit the conversation, but he wasn't through telling me what I thought, what I uh, I felt like Sergeant Schultz and the old Hogan's Heroes uh, comedy show in the 60s. I, I know nothing. I see nothing. I thought I'm not even sure I got out of bed this morning, Sergeant Schultz would say. That was the worst experience I've ever had with it. It's the person that tells you what you are thinking without without understanding your position on the matter. Now, the second is someone, and I've talked about this, they're wearing you down until you give in to their perspective, though they have not convinced you of their perspective. In this latter case, you just sign off on it. It's the war of attrition because you don't want to, you just don't want to argue any longer. In this first situation where they tell you what you're thinking, this is what I call the statement maker, not the question asker. They're just making statements. This is what you believe. This is what you think. This kind of thing. The statement maker tells you what is going on in your head without trying to assess with thoughtful questions what you believe. It's a brazen manipulative tactic that does not value your opinion. It's more critical for them to get you to toe the line than to do the hard work of conflict resolution. Many authoritative pastors are like this, not just the one that I had once upon a time, but I've, I've, heard, I've heard this song many times. Now, this second technique, the attrition technique of wearing you, you down, the war of attrition method, they wear you down by their repetitive drum beats until you just finally wave the white flag. And then even after you surrender, you may not believe what they are saying to you, even after you surrender, but you tacitly accept it because it is the path of least resistance. After a while, after a while, it won't be that you don't believe it any longer. It'll, it'll become part of who you are. It'll become part of how you think. Now, the Overton window fits within this concept. Perhaps you have heard of the Overton window. You can think of it like this, like a, a rectangle, like a rectangle on a piece of paper. And inside that rectangle are things that we accept, you know. So like for historically, we accept gay marriage is sin, for example. And so that would not be within the Overton window, it would be outside the Overton window, or it used to be. But then the Overton window, is, it, it just subtly shifts. It, it starts to move in a very slow and imperceptible way until eventually it encompasses things that you did not believe before, like gay marriage. And so gay marriage is an illustration. Forever, gay marriage would never fit within the rectangle on the piece of paper. It would never fit within the Overton window. But through gaslighting techniques and a lot of politics and, and just the persuasive power of our culture, the Overton window began to shift. And now what is outside the Overton window are those who disagree with gay marriage. And so now we're out there in. And so the Overton window kind of fits within this concept. It's a sliding scale that reclassifies what is acceptable. When a person senses gaslighting is happening to them, they should make their appeals to the gaslighter. Now, in this podcast, I've been using Biff as the aggressor in the gaslighting and Mabel as the victim of his manipulations, even though it can go the other way around. But the proper, in this case, in this illustration that I'm running with here, the proper response for Mabel is to appeal to Biff to repent. You need to appeal to him to repent. 
This approach is the template that the Lord gave us in Matthew 18. And so early on, there comes a point where you can't do this any longer, but early on, you at least need to do this. Wife, even though you're submitted to him, and I'll talk about your submission in just a moment, but you need to appeal to him to repent. Now, I am well aware, I wasn't born yesterday, but in many of these cases, this biblical approach will not work. I'm just going to say it. Matthew 18 won't work. But I'm telling you to do it because that's what we should do. Is is You should do that with anyone. If anyone is, is sinning, you want to confront them. That's just biblical. But I'm saying in this case, many times it just won't work, especially if Biff is a gaslighter. He has a plan. And if he perceives the person as being weaker and manipulatable, he won't let up without more substantial outside pressure to change him. And that's what I was saying to the pastor today in the email that I sent to him that, yes, you need to intervene in this situation uh, with this couple. Habitualized, overbearing people do not let up. It's probably a life-dominating sin. It's not a technique they stumbled on by watching a movie. That's not what happened here. You know, what you're dealing with is the person who's habitualized in a life-dominating sin. And so it's not just that they won't give up, but they can't give up. And what I mean by that is in Galatians 6.1, they are caught. Their sin owns them now. And that's what happens. We're talking about an addict here. And so before Mabel gets farther along the, sh- the soul-shrinking continuum, and she not only needs to confront him, but she needs to reach out to her biblical authorities and continue on with this Matthew 18 template. Someone, which may mean several folks, needs to step up and intervene for Mabel. They need to advocate for her. Too often, a person like Mabel won't do this for several reasons, and I'm not criticizing her. I'm just speaking to the reality of what's going on in this situation. Let me give you four reasons that Mabel will be inhibited or tentative from making her own case and for for going up against a person like this. One, she's not entirely convinced that what she sees. This happens so often. It's like you see. It's it's like you see something, but it's. I don't believe what I'm looking at is what I'm looking at. She probably doesn't want to believe what she's looking at. This happens so often in the beauty. I'm not faulting her. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes you look at something, and it's so confounding and dumbfounding and, and so counter to what common sense is and normal behavior is. It's like you don't want to believe this. And you'll hear parents say this about their own children. I didn't want to believe this. They didn't want to see it. And so she's not entirely convinced that what she sees is real. Number two, she's hoping against hope that he will change. This idea of love believes all things, it can't go too far. But you just want to hope and hope and hope and hope and hope that he will change. And so that that can really delay Uh, jumping in and confronting him. Number three, she knows that if she says something, she will burn a significant portion of their relational bridge. And rather than burning that bridge, she continues to hold out, hoping Bill will change. Because once you you send up the flare and and you confront him, well, you've burned a bridge right there, and that's going to be problematic. Number four, she has to weigh the consequences of doing nothing versus doing something. Again, once that flare goes up, guess what? After the interveners leave, she's going to be left to live with him. And if you're in a weaker, vulnerable 
vulnerable position. Do you want to live with an abusive person? And so, again, I'm not faulting her, but it's imperative for everybody else to understand why she may be tentative. And now, I'm running out of time here, and I'm not going to be able to share everything in this article, but I do want you to read it because there's so much stuff here. But I do want to talk as I wrap up. I want to talk about this idea of submission, and I just want to bring this angle into submission because so often in our Christian culture, I'm speaking of specifically, we got some screwed up ideas about submission, or at least one messed up idea. A wife is not submitting well if she does not attempt to disciple her husband. Submission is submission to someone is not a brain dead activity for the incompetent. It's, it's in part, submission is in part a call to action to serve those you're submitting to so they will be better people. And so there is a leadership aspect to submission. To submit well takes courage, competence, and other leadership qualities. And what I don't want you to hear here is I'm accusing Mabel in this. I want to inspire and motivate Mabel to step up and lead her husband in an area of his weakness. Being the authority doesn't mean you're omnicompetent in every area. Sometimes we can connect authority figures as omnicompetent. (laughs) It's not true. Every person has strengths and weaknesses. There are areas where Biff is weak, and the ideal, it's the ideal, though it might not happen in this marriage, but it's for Mabel to step up and fill in those areas, bringing her strengths and her gifts into the marriage to make both of them better people. If a dominating personality type is taking the marriage to wrong places, then the wife needs to make a move earlier than later to steer the union out of harm's way. Because once it goes to a bad place, well, it may be beyond that point and she can't step up at all. Thanks for listening.